0: Hello, my name is Tapio Seven. and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 37. First, some headlines. In sustainable investment news, the UK is to stop providing foreign aid for thermal coal mining, and Microsoft has pledged to become carbon negative by 2030. But, on the other side of the coin, and a revisit to Richard Lim's quote in Episode 36 about the gap between consumer demand and actual consumer behavior, Coca-Cola's head of sustainability, Bia Perez, has said that they will not abandon single-use plastic bottles as consumers want them for their convenience. They too have a 2030 pledge, and that's to recycle as many plastic bottles as they produce. Britain's withdrawal agreement received royal assent on Thursday. It'll become an act once the House of Lords and House of Commons have been notified. As a result, the UK leaves the EU next Friday, the 31st of January. And it's been a while since we've reported on post-Brexit preparations. On that front, J.P. Morgan Chase has bought a second building in Paris as it prepares for shifting a substantial amount of its euro trading out of London post-Brexit, and Herbert Smith Freehills have had to absorb its German partnership to avoid a regulatory minefield after the UK leaves the EU. In deal news, CMS, DLA Piper, and Osborne Clark all have roles in City Fiber's £200 million acquisition of TalkTalk-owned Fiber Nation. And finally, in high street news, Beals, one of Britain's oldest department stores, founded in 1881, has gone into administration, putting 1,000 jobs at risk. If you would like to read more on any of these stories, links, as always, are in the description. Now, the longer reads. The first read is an indirect revisit to last week's story about Flybe's rescue. So, last week we spoke at length about the Flybee Rescue, and I candidly admitted that it was an odd move. It was also a move that attracted scrutiny from competing companies, analysts, and possibly the European Commission. And truth be told, I didn't completely understand why the government would make such a risky move. Well, this week a government review was leaked stating that HS2 would cost 20% beyond the estimated 81 to 88 billion pounds it had been estimated at just four months ago. Obviously, such an increase makes one consider the cost and benefit of HS2, but more than that it also puts the rescue into perspective. Compare a deferral of a £106 million tax bill to a ballooning infrastructure plan, a regional connector that's already a going concern in Flybe, even if barely, and a project that faces more and more setbacks. In short, the move was risky, but consolidating transport that already exists at the cost of 0.1% of the cost of a new transport project simple maths. And that's why this is an indirect revisit, which I'm quite grateful for, as it's given me an answer to a question I did not have at the time, quite quickly at that, and presents more evidence of how commercial awareness is built, and it's in how we can connect stories. For these reasons, we can count ourselves lucky for the timing, but not so lucky if you're looking forward to HS2 anytime soon, or possibly ever. So, I've said all of this assuming that we all know what HS2 is, and conceding that we have never actually mentioned HS2. So, what's HS2? HS2 would be a new railway between London and the West Midlands, with 400 meter long trains carrying up to 1,100 people, which would triple the capacity of trains across the route. The trains would be capable of reaching speeds of over 250 miles per hour. For example, this would cut Manchester to London journeys from 2 hours and 7 minutes to 1 hour and 7 minutes. The development would be in two phases. First from London to Birmingham, predicted to be complete by 2031, and the second phase to Manchester and Leeds, predicted to be complete by 2040. The cost of the project was first projected at £32.7 billion, to £56 billion, to between £81 and £88 billion, and now possibly over £106 billion. The HS2 cost has risen in some part due to the underestimated cost of buying property and land where HS2 would run, and a failure to conduct extensive soil surveys has made excavation more difficult than predicted. Contractors have not agreed prices for construction yet, and London Euston's current design is quote, not satisfactory, end quote, for HS2. So, will HS2 be abandoned? Well, when Boris Johnson was running for Tory leadership, he said quote, I worry about cancelling a big national project of that scale without anything to replace it. End quote. The government has already poured in £8 billion, and this new review, labeled the v Review, actually recommends that the project push on, though Phase 2 will be delayed as they consider using some of the conventional lines to cut costs. The review also concedes that it is hard to say what economic benefits will result from building it, and HS2 would need to be accompanied by investment in local transport. Speaking of that, it's also worth noting that HS2 is different to the Northern Powerhouse Rail Project, which is a £39 billion project linking the big cities of the North and the Midlands Engine, a growth initiative for the East and West Midlands with a planned £392 million investment in transport. So, what happens next? The Department for Transport said, quote, the Transport Secretary, Chancellor, and Prime Minister will take a final decision on HS2 shortly, end quote shortly has been interpreted as a few weeks from now, so we'll watch the story as it develops. It's also worth considering the problems the rail industry currently faces. To name a few, Northern TransPennine Express and West Midlands Railways have all been plagued with delays for a few years now, and some of that is due to the current infrastructure, such as signaling issues. Should the government then prioritize the issues we already face instead of looking forward to 20 years from now? And what about HS2? Should it be constructed no matter the cost? HS2 is another commercial awareness behemoth, to be honest. Real estate and land laws, homes, and land in the route need to be bought at fair prices to be demolished. The disputes that arise from that, the environmental law considerations throughout its construction and development, the general commercial law and the negotiations with contractors and buying of materials, debt finance, banking, transport, the list could go on. I was going to wait to talk about HS2 until after the final decision, but this felt like great timing after Flybe's rescue. Credit for this story goes to Gil Plimmer, Jim Pickard, Alex Daniel, Lucy Handley, and the BBC. In the second read, the Information Commissioner's Office has drawn up new child data privacy rules. This is kind of a follow-up to episode 26, in the way that it is regulation directed at children in such a way that could affect how an entire industry operates. It is also another page in the book of regulation catching up to tech. These new rules do not allow social media sites, games, apps, connected toys, streaming services and educational websites to nudge children into revealing personal details. This nudge is something that you may have seen in your own internet browsing. Have you ever had the option to just accept cookies or see other options? The other options sometimes involve deselecting a number of data gathering methods, making declining data gathering far more strenuous than just merely accepting it, nudging us into providing more personal details. That isn't the only rule as this age-appropriate design code has 15 standards that must be met by all aforementioned parties. Violation of rules could result in fines worth up to 4% of a company's global revenue. Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham said, There are laws to protect children in the real world. Film ratings, car seats, age restrictions on drinking and smoking. We need our laws to protect children in the digital world too. These new rules are expected to come into full effect by autumn of next year, and it is not expected that they will face any hurdles in Parliament. Commercial awareness, once again, this is tech regulation news. Regulatory lawyers will be kept busy for years and years to come as new laws come into play, affecting a large amount of companies and how they interact with their consumer base in the countries they operate in. In episode 26, we spoke about the Children's Commissioner seeking to reclassify loot boxes and video games as gambling, which would in effect kill a £700 million a year industry. This regulation is even wider, and that 2021 date of implementation allows us to assume that this will become law when the UK transition period is officially over. This may mean that there could be even more regulation that will be starkly different to that of EU members, creating a regulation minefield for private bodies to navigate in Europe, with the assistance of their lawyers, and a regulatory lacuna between the UK and other European countries. And this is actually a perfect segue into the next story. Credit for this story goes to Calvin Chan. For the final story, the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, said that the UK will diverge from EU rules. In an interview with the Financial Times, he said, quote, There will not be alignment, we will not be a rule taker, we will not be in the single market, and we will not be in the customs union, end quote. In all fairness, those last two points are pretty obvious considering what Brexit entails, but his statement is still a major blow to a number of manufacturing sectors that prefer alignment with EU regulations such as cars aerospace pharmaceuticals and food and drink for ease of export and import these sectors have expressed hope in remaining in lockstep with the eu in some respects but javits recent remarks imply that there is no intention to do so as one would guess the eu has reacted negatively to this with one diplomat saying that regulatory divergence would quote obviously lead to new trade hurdles between britain and the eu and in consequence less trade fewer investments and fewer jobs end quote this also makes negotiations quite difficult considering that the EU's no negotiating stance was agreeing to zero-tariff, quota-free trade, only if the UK aligned with the EU's fundamental rules, as that would ensure quality of products being traded. This statement casts more doubt over the length of this transition period, as the end of the year may not be enough time to negotiate terms that would prevent friction at the border and major regulatory hurdles. So, in substance, how would this affect car manufacturers, for example? Well, currently, car manufacturers can sell cars in the UK and EU under the same certificate through a process called homologation, where they perform a number of tests ensuring that the cars are up to standard. Once certified, the cars can be sold across the UK and EU. In short, same tests, same certificate, ease of trade. Regulatory divergence would mean companies intending to sell cars in the UK would need to obtain a separate certificate, and possibly even manufacture cars specifically for the UK to meet UK specs, increasing manufacturing and regulatory costs. This would ultimately lead to less consumer choice, and possibly higher costs for consumers. On the other side of the coin, as almost half of the cars made in the UK are exported to the EU, those manufacturers may find it cheaper to just produce the cars outside of the UK as it may be one less regulatory hurdle. This is not favorable for an already shrinking industry in the UK. The aviation industry also banks on alignment, which actually brings us all the way back to episode 8. When the ceo of airbus published a very damning video warning of the result of brexit which would be an airbus exit from the uk as they enjoy the ability to manufacture parts in different countries and move them without friction as airbus currently employs 14,000 people in the uk this is not favorable either so bottom line regulatory divergence may significantly affect a large number of manufacturing sectors and snowball into other aspects of commerce with all that said however Javid's statement shouldn't really be a surprise, considering that a large part of the vote-leave campaign was built on no longer having to follow EU rules. But if you were wondering why exactly companies were migrating from the UK, a development like this is probably one of the reasons. Furthermore, a right to diverge from EU rules isn't necessarily an obligation to diverge, though Javid's remarks imply an intention to diverge. This response from a number of manufacturers may change how these divergences take place, though. So, once again, merely saying Brexit when asked about commercial awareness is far too vague. Stories like this provide us with an in. It's very current and will develop with each week as trade negotiations continue. It affects a large number of stakeholders, from manufacturing companies and thousands of their employees, EU importers and exporters, and us as both the consumers and, of course, the lawyers. Credit for this story goes to Rula Kalaf, George Parker, Chris Giles, Sam Fleming, Michael Peel, Peter Campbell, and Peggy Hollinger. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to like, follow, subscribe, and rate on your listening platforms. It goes a long way. And if you find it useful, please share it amongst your friends and colleagues. If you ever need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode's description. And the podcast's Instagram page is at comwarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, If you prefer to ask your questions or share your comments there, or just want to be a part of the community. Other than that, as always, thank you for listening and your support, and you'll hear from me next week.